Section 12, Part 2 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by himself, by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. My life has been a life of trouble and turmoil, of change and vicissitude, of anger and exaltation, of sorrow and of vengeance. My sorrows have all been for a slighted gospel, and my vengeance has been wreaked on its adversaries. Therefore, in the might of heaven, I will sit down and write. I will let the wicked of this world know what I have done in the faith of the promises and justification by grace, that they may read and tremble and bless their gods of silver and gold, that the minister of heaven was removed from their sphere before their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. I was born an outcast in the world in which I was destined to act so conspicuous a part. My mother was a burning and a shining light in the community of Scottish worthies, and in the days of her virginity had suffered much in the persecution of the saints. But it so pleased heaven that, as a trial of her faith, she was married to one of the wicked, a man all over spotted, with the leprosy of sin. As well might they have conjoined fire and water together, in hopes that they would consort and amalgamate as purity and corruption. She fled from his embraces the first night after their marriage, and from that time forth his inequities so galled her upright heart that she quitted his society altogether keeping her own apartments in the same house with him. I was the second son of this unhappy marriage, and ere ever I was born, my father, according to the flesh, disclaimed all relation or connection with me, and all interest in me, save what the law compelled him to take, which was to grant me a scanty maintenance and had it not been for a faithful minister of the gospel, my mother's early instructor, I should have remained an outcast from the church visible. He took pity on me, admitting me not only into that, but into the bosom of his own household and ministry also, and to him I am indebted under heaven for the high conceptions and glorious discernment between good and evil, right and wrong, which I attained even at an early age. It was he who directed my studies aright, both in the learning of the ancient fathers and the doctrines of the Reformed Church, and designed me for his assistant and successor in the Holy Office. I missed no opportunity of perfecting myself particularly in all the minute points of theology 
in which my reverend father and mother took a great delight. But at length, I acquired so much skill that I astonished my teachers and made them gaze at one another. I remember that it was the custom in my patron's house to ask questions of the singular catechism round every Sabbath night. He asked the first, my mother the second, and so on, everyone saying the question asked and then asking the next. It fell to my mother to ask effectual calling at me. I said the answer with propriety and emphasis. Now, madam, added I, my question to you is, what is ineffectual calling? Ineffectual calling? There is no such thing, Robert, said she. But there is, madam, said I. And that answer proves how much you say these fundamental precepts by rote and without any consideration. Ineffectual calling is the outward call of the gospel without any effect on the hearts of unregenerated and impenitent sinners. Have not all these the same calls, warnings, doctrines, and reproofs that we have? And is not this ineffectual calling? Has not Arden Ferry the same? Has not Patrick McClure the same? Has not the Laird of Dahl Castle and his reprobate heir the same? And will any tell me that this is not ineffectual calling? What a wonderful boy he is, said my mother. I'm feared he turned out to be a conceited gawk, said old Barnett, the minister's man. No, said my pastor and father, as I shall henceforth denominate him. No, Barnett, he is a wonderful boy, and no marvel, for I have prayed for these talents to be bestowed on him from his infancy. And do you think that heaven would refuse a prayer so disinterested? No, it is impossible. But my dread is, madam, continued he, turning to my mother, that he is yet in the bond of inequity. God forbid, said my mother. I have struggled with the Almighty long and hard, continued he but have as yet no certain token of acceptance in his behalf. I have indeed fought a hard fight, but have been repulsed by him who hath seldom refused my request. Although I cited his own words against him, and endeavored to hold him at his promise, he hath so many turnings in the supremacy of his power that I have been rejected. How dreadful is it to think of our darling being still without the pale of the covenant? But I have vowed a vow, and in that there is hope. My heart quaked with terror when I thought of being still living in a state of reprobation, subjected to the awful issues of death, judgment, and eternal misery by the slightest accident or casualty and I set about the duty of prayer myself with the utmost earnestness. 
I prayed three times every day, and seven times on the Sabbath. But the more frequently and fervently that I prayed, I sinned still the more. About this time, and for a long period afterwards, amounting to several years, I lived in a hopeless and deplorable state of mind. For I said to myself, If my name is not written in the book of life from all eternity, it is in vain for me to presume that either vows or prayers of mine, or those of all mankind combined, can ever procure its insertion now. I had come under many vows, most solemnly taken, every one of which I had broken, and I saw with the intensity of juvenile grief that there was no hope for me. I went on sinning every hour, and all the while most strenuously warring against sin, and repenting of every one transgression as soon after the commission of it as I got leisure to think. But oh, what a wretched state this unregenerated state is, in which every effort after righteousness only aggravates our offenses. I found it vanity to contend, for after communing with my heart, the conclusion was as follows. If I could repent me of all my sins, and shed tears of blood for them, Still have I not a load of original transgression pressing on me that is enough to crush me to the lowest hell? I may be angry with my first parents for having sinned, but how I shall repent me of their sin is beyond what I am able to comprehend. Still, in those days of depravity and corruption, I had some of those principles implanted in my mind which were afterwards to spring up with such amazing fertility among the heroes of the faith and the promises. In particular, I felt great indignation against all the wicked of this world, and often wished for the means of ridding it of such a noxious burden. I liked John Barnett, my reverend father serving man, extremely ill, but, from a supposition that he might be one of the justified, I refrained from doing him any injury. He gave always his word against me, and when we were by ourselves, in the barn or the fields, he rated me with such severity for my faults that my heart could brook it no longer. He discovered some notorious lies that I had framed, and taxed me with them in such a manner that I could in no wise get off. My cheek burnt with offense rather than shame, and he, thinking he had got the mastery of me, exalted over me most unmercifully, telling me I was a selfish and conceited blackguard who made great pretenses towards religious devotion to cloak a deposition tainted with deceit, and that it would not much astonish him if I brought myself to the gallows. I gathered some courage from his over-severity and answered him as follows. 
Who made thee a judge of the actions or dispositions of the Almighty's creatures? Thou who art a worm, and no man in his sight. How it befits thee to deal out judgments and anathemas. Hath he not made one vessel to honor, and another to dishonor, as in the case with myself and thee? Hath he not builded his stories in the heavens, and laid the foundations thereof in the earth? And how can a being like thee judge between good and evil, that are both subjected to the workings of his hand, or of the opposing principles in the soul of man, correcting, modifying, and refining one another? I said this with that strong display of fervor for which I was remarkable at my years, and expected old Barnett to be utterly confounded. But he only shook his head, and with the most provoking grin said, There he goes, sick and sublime and ridiculous sophistry, I never heard come out of another mouth but aim. There needs nay eighths to be sworn afore the session. Why is your father, young good man? I near for my part, saw a son sack like a dad, sin my een first opened. With that he went away, saying with an ill-natured wince, You made to honor and me to dishonor? Dirty bow-cow thing that thou beest. I will have the old rascal on the hip for this, if I live, thought I. So I went and asked my mother if John was a righteous man. She could not tell, but supposed he was, and therefore I got no encouragement from her. I went next to my reverend father and inquired his opinion, expecting as little from that quarter. He knew the elect as it were by instinct, and could have told you of all those in his own, and some neighboring parishes who were born within the boundaries of the covenant of promise, and who were not. I keep a good deal in company with your servant, old Barnett, father, said I. You do, boy? You do? I see, said he. I wish I may not keep too much in his company, said I, not knowing what kind of society I am in. Is John a good man, father? Why, boy, he is but so-so. A morally good man John is, but very little of the leaven of true righteousness, which is faith within. I am afraid old Barnett, with all his stock of morality, will be a castaway. My heart was greatly cheered by this remark, and I sighed very deeply, and hung my head to one side. The worthy father observed me, and inquired the cause, when I answered as follows. How dreadful the thought, that I have been going daily in company and fellowship with one whose name is written on the red-letter side of the Book of Life whose body and soul have been, from all eternity, consigned over to everlasting destruction, and to whom the blood of the anointment can never, never reach. Father, this is an awful thing, 
and beyond my comprehension. While we are in the world, we must mix with the inhabitants thereof, said he. And the stains which adhere to us by reason of this mixture, which is unavoidable, shall all be washed away. It is our duty, however, to shun the society of wicked men as much as possible, lest we partake of their sins, and become sharers with them in punishment. John, however, is a morally good man, and may yet get a cast of grace. I always thought him to be a good man till today, said I, when he threw out some reflections on your character, so horrible that I quake to think of the wickedness and malevolence of his heart. He was rating me very impertinently for some supposed fault which had no being save in his own jealous brain. When I attempted to reason him out of his belief in the spirit of calm Christian argument, but how do you think he answered me? He did so, sir, by twisting his mouth at me and remarking that such sublime and ridiculous sophistry never came out of another mouth but one, meaning yours and that no oath before a Kirk session was necessary to prove who was my dad, for that he had never seen a son so like a father as I was like mine. He durst not for his soul's salvation, and for his daily bread, which he values much more. Say such a word, boy. Therefore, take care what you assert, said my reverend father. He said these very words, and will not deny them, sir, said I. My reverend father turned about in great wrath and indignation, and went away in search of John. But I kept out of the way, and listened at a back window, for John was dressing the plot of ground behind the house. And I hope it was no sin in me that I did rejoice in the dialogue which took place. It being the victory of righteousness over error. Well, John, this is a fine day for your delving work. Hey, it's a tolerable day, sir. Are you thankful in heart, John, for such temporal mercies as these? Ah, uh, doubt we're over a little thankful, sir, bathed for temporal and spiritual mercies. But is not a the maist thankful heart that masked the greatest phrase, we the tongue? I hope there is nothing personal under that remark, John. Gin the bannet fit son and body's head, they're uncle welcome to it, sir, for me. John, I do not approve of these innuendos. You have an arch-malicious manner of vending your aphorisms which the men of the world are too apt to read the wrong way, for your dark hints are sure to have one very bad meaning. How's not I, sir? It's only bad folks that think sack. They find my bits of gibbs come hame to their hearts. We a kind of yerk, and that gars them wince. That saying is ten times worse than the other, John. It is a manifest insult. It is just telling me to my face that you think me a bad man. 
A body cannot help his thoughts, sir. No, but a man's thoughts are generally formed from observation. Now, I should like to know, even from the mouth of a misbeliever, what part of my conduct warrants such a conclusion? Nay, particular part, sir. I draw my conclusions fray the hale old man's character, and I'm no that effin' far wrong. Well, John, and what sort of general character do you suppose mine to be? Yours is a scripture character, sir, and I'll prove it. I hope so, John. Well, which of the scripture characters do you think approximates nearest to my own? Guess, sir, guess. I wish to lead a proof. Why, if it be an Old Testament character, I hope it is Melchizedek. For at all events, you cannot deny there is one point of resemblance. I, like him, am a preacher of righteousness. If it be a New Testament character, I suppose you mean the Apostle of the Gentiles, of whom I am an unworthy representative. Nah, nah, sir. Better nor that still, and fair closer is the resemblance. When ye bring me to the point, I on speak. Ye are the just Pharisee, sir, that gate up we the poor publican to pray in the temple. And ye are acting the very same part at this time, and saying I your heart. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, and in nay way like this poor, misbelieving, unregenerate sinner, John Barnett. I hope I may say so indeed. There now! I told you how it was. But do you hear, maester? Here stands the poor sinner, John Barnett, your beetle and servant man. We want to chain chances we you in the weast world, nor conscious in this. For ten times of that you possess, your justification by faith and authogither. You are extremely audacious and impertinent, John, but the language of reprobation cannot affect me. I came only to ask you one question, which I desire you to answer candidly. Did you ever say to anyone that I was the boy Robert's natural father? Houtna, sir! Ha, ha, ha! Hi, fee, nay, sir! I durst nay say that for my life. I doubt the black stool, and the sack gown, or maybe the jugs when hey been my portion, had I said sick a thing as that. Hout, hout! Fee, fee! Uncle-like doings they for a Melchizedek or a St. Paul! John, you are a profane old man and I desire that you will not presume to break your jest on me. Tell me, dare you say, or dare you think, that I am the natural father of that boy? Ye cannot hinder me to think whatever I like, sir, nor can I hinder myself. But did you ever say to anyone that he resembled me, and fathered himself well enough? I hey said many a time that he resembled you, sir. Nay, body can mistake that. But, John, there are many natural reasons for such likenesses, besides that of consanguinity. 
They depend much on the thoughts and affections of the mother, and it is probable that the mother of this boy, being deserted by her worthless husband, having turned her thoughts on me, as likely to be her protector, may have caused this striking resemblance. Aye, it might be, sir, I could not say. I have known a lady, John, who was delivered of a blackamoor child, merely from the circumstance of having got a start by the sudden entrance of her negro servant, and not being able to forget him for several hours. It may be, sir, but I ken this, and I had been the laird, I won na hay taken that story in. So then, John, you positively think, from a casual likeness, that this boy is my son? Man's thoughts are vanity, sir. They come unasked, and gang away without a dismissal, and he cannot help them. I'm neither gonna say that I think he's your son, nor that I think he's no your son. Say ye needn't oppose me nay mare about it. Hear then my determination, John, if you do not promise to me, in faith and honor, that you never will say or insinuate such a thing again in your life as that that boy is my natural son, I will take the keys of the church from you and dismiss you from my service. John pulled out the keys and dashed them on the gravel at the reverend minister's feet. There are the keys of your kirk, sir. I hae never made muckle mence of them since he entered the door out. I hae carried them this three and thirty year, but they hae ye been like a burn a hole in my pouch sin ever they were turned for your admittance. Take them again and gee them to your will, and muckle god may he gado them. Old John may de a beggar in a hay barn or that to the back of a dyke, but he saw a be master of his own thoughts and gee them vent or no as he likes. He left the manse that day, and I rejoiced in the riddance, for I disdained to be kept so much under by one who was in bond of inequity, and of whom there seemed no hope, as he rejoiced in his frowardness, and refused to submit to that faithful teacher, his master. End of section 12